Chapter Twelve of Through the Fray by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gabrielle C. Chapter Twelve Murdered. In spite of Ned's resolutions that he would do nothing to mar the tranquillity of the last weeks of his being at home, he had difficulty in restraining his temper the following day at tea. Never had he seen his stepfather in so bad a humor. Had he known that things had gone wrong at the mill that day, that the new machine had broken one of its working parts, and had brought everything to a standstill till it could be repaired, he would have been able to make allowances for Mr. Mulvady's ill humor. Not knowing this, he grew pale with the efforts which he made to restrain himself, as his stepfather snarled at his wife, snapped at Lucy and Charlie, and grumbled and growled at everything throughout the meal. Everything that was said was wrong, and at last, having silenced his wife and her children, the meal was completed in gloomy silence. The two boys went into the little room off the hall which they used of an evening to prepare their lessons for the next day. Charlie, who came in last, did not shut the door behind him. "'That is a nice man, our stepfather,' Ned said in a cruel fury. "'His ways get more and more pleasant every day. Such an amiable, popular man, so smiling and pleasant.' "'Oh, it's no use saying anything,' Charlie said in an imploring voice. "'It only makes things worse.' "'Worse?' Ned exclaimed indignantly. "'How could they be worse?' Well may they call him Foxy, for Foxy he is, a double-faced, snarling brute. As the last word issued from Ned's lips, he wheeled under a tremendous box on the ear from behind. Mr. Mulvady was passing through the hall, for his gig was waiting at the door to take him back to the mill, where some fitters would be at work till late, repairing the damages to the machine when he had caught Ned's voice, which was spoken at the top of his voice. The smoldering anger of months burst at once into a flame heightened by the ill humor in which the day's events had caused, and he burst into the room and almost felled Ned to the ground with a swinging blow. Recovering himself, Ned flew at him, but the boy was no match for the man, and for Mr. Mulvady's passion, as as fierce as his own. Seizing his throat with his left hand, forcing him back into a corner of the room, his stepfather struck him again and again with all the force of his right. Charlie had run at once from the room to fetch his mother, and it was scarcely a minute after com the commencement of the outbreak that he rushed into the room, and with a scream threw his arms around her husband. "'The young scoundrel!' Mr. Mulvady exclaimed, panting, as he released his hold of Ned. "'He has been wanting a lesson for a long time, and I have given him one at last. He called me Foxy, the young villain, and said I was a double-faced, sterling brute. Let him say so again, I will knock his head off!' But Ned, just at present, was not in a condition to repeat his words. Breathless and half-stunned, he leaned in the corner. His breath came in gasps. His face was pale as death. His cheek was cut. There were red marks on the forehead which would speedily become black, and the blood was flowing from a cut on his lips. His eyes had a dazed and half-stupid look. "'Oh, William!' Mrs. Mulvady said as she looked at her son. "'How could you hurt him so?' "'Hurt him, the young reptile!' Mr. Mulvady said savagely. "'I meant to hurt him. I'll hurt him more next time.' Mrs. Mulvady paid no attention to his words, but went up to Ned. Ned, my boy, she said tenderly, what is it? Don't look like that, Ned. Speak to me. His mother's voice seemed to rouse Ned into consciousness. He drew a long breath, then slowly passed his hand across his eyes and lips and mouth. He looked at his mother and seemed about to speak, but no sound came from his lips. Then his eye fell on his stepfather, who, rather alarmed at the boy's appearance, was standing near the door. The expression of Ned's face changed. His mouth became set and rigid, his eyes dilated, and Mr. Mulvady, believing that he was about to spring upon him, drew him back hastily half a step and threw up his hands to defend himself. Mrs. Mulvady threw herself in Ned's way. The boy made no effort to person her side, but kept his eyes fixed over her shoulder at his stepfather. 
"'Take care,' he said hoarsely. "'It will be my turn next time, and when it comes, I will kill you, you brute.' "'Oh, go away, William!' Mrs. Mulvady cried. "'Oh, do go away, or there will be more mischief.' "'Oh, Ned, do sit down, and don't look so dreadful. He is going now.' Mr. Mulvady turned and went with a laugh which he intended to be scornful, but in which there was a strong tinge of uneasiness. He had always in his heart been afraid of this boy with his wild and reckless temper, and felt that in his present mood Ned was capable of anything. Still, as Mr. Mulvady took his seat in his gig, his predominant feeling was satisfaction. "'I am glad I have given him a lesson,' he muttered to himself, "'and have paid him off for months of insolence.' He won't try it on again, and as for his threats, pooh! He will be gone in a few weeks, and there will be an end of it. After he had gone, Mrs. Mulvady tried to soothe Ned, but the boy would not listen to her, and in fact did not seem to hear her. Don't you mind, mother, he said in a strange, quiet voice. I will pay him off. And muttering these words over and over again, he went out into the hall, took down his cap in a quiet, mechanical sort of way, put it on, opened the door, and went out. Oh, Charlie! Mrs. Mulvady said to her second son, who, sobbing bitterly, had thrown himself down in a chair by the table and was sitting with his head on his hands, "'There will be something terrible come of this. Ned's temper is so dreadful, and my husband was wrong, too. He should never have beaten him so, though Ned did say such things to him. What shall I do? These quarrels will be the death of me. I suppose Ned will be wandering about all night again. Do put on your cap, Curly, and go out and see if you can find him, and persuade him to come home and go to bed.' perhaps he will listen to you. Charlie was absent an hour and returned saying that he could not find his brother. Perhaps he's gone up to Varley as he did last time, Mrs. Mulvady said. I am sure I hope he has, else he will be wandering about all night. And he had such a strange look in his face that there is no saying where he might go to or what he might do. Charlie was almost heartbroken and sat up till long past his usual time, waiting for his brother's return. At last his eyes would no longer keep open, and he stumbled upstairs to bed, where he fell asleep almost as his head touched the pillow, in spite of his resolution to be awake until Ned returned. Downstairs Mrs. Mulvady kept watch. She did not expect Ned to return, but she was listening for the wheels of her husband's gig. It was uncertain at what time he would return, for when he rose from the tea table she had asked him what time he expected to be back, and he had replied that he could not say. He should stop until the repairs were finished, and she was to go to bed and not bother. So at eleven o'clock she went upstairs, for once before when he had been out late and she had sat up he had been much annoyed. But after she got in bed she lay for hours listening for the sound of the wheels. At last she fell asleep and dreamed that Ned and her husband were standing at the end of a precipice, grappling fiercely together in a life-and-death struggle. She was awakened at last by a knocking at the door. She glanced at a watch which hung above her head. It was about half-past six. "'What is it, Mary?' "'Please, Mum, there's a constable below, and he wants to speak to you immediate.' Mrs. Mulvady sprang from the bed and began to dress herself hurriedly. All sorts of mischief that might have come to Ned passed rapidly through her mind. Her husband had not returned, but no doubt he had stopped at the mill all night watching the men at work. His absence scarcely occasioned her a moment's thought. In a very few minutes she was downstairs in the kitchen, where the constable was standing waiting for her. She knew him by sight, for Marston possessed but four constables, and they were all in well-known characters. "'What is it?' she asked. "'Has anything happened to my son?' "'No, Mum. the constable said in a tone of surprise. "'I didn't know as he wasn't in bed and asleep. "'But I have some bad news for you, Mum. "'It's a bad job altogether.' "'What is it?' she asked again. "'Is it my husband?' "'Well, Mum, I am sorry to say as it be. "'A chap came in early this morning and told me as something had happened.' So he goes out, and half a mile from the town I finds it just as he says. But what is it? 
Mrs. Mulready gasped. "'Well, Mum, I am sorry to have to tell you, but there was a gig all smashed to atoms, and there was a little black mare laying on a heap with her neck broke, and there was—' And he stopped. "'My husband!' Mrs. Mulready gasped. "'Yes, Mum, I be main sorry to say it were. There, yards in front of them, were Mr. Mulready just stiff and cold. He'd been flung right out over the hoss's head. I expect he had fallen on his head and must have been killed right out.' "'And the worst of it be, marm, as it warn't an accident, "'for there, tied across the road, about eighteen inches above the ground, "'was a rope stretched tied between a gate on either side. "'It was plain enough to see what had happened. "'The mare had come tearing along his ear all twelve mile an hour in the dark, "'and she had caught the rope, and of course there had been a regular smash.' "'The pretty color had all gone from Mrs. Mulvady's face as he began her story, "'but ghastly pallor spread over her face, "'and a look of deadly horror came into her eyes as she continued. "'Oh, Ned, Ned!' she wailed. "'How could you?' "'And then she fell senseless to the ground. "'The constable raised her and placed her in a chair. "'Are you sure the master's dead?' the servant asked, wiping her eyes. "'Sure enough,' the constable said. "'I have sent the doctor off already, but it's no good. "'He's been dead hours and hours, but—' He continued, his professional instincts coming to the surface. What did she mean by saying, Oh, Ned, how could you? She asked me too, first about him. Ain't he at home? No, he ain't, the servant said, and ain't been at home all night. There were a row between him and the maester last even. They had a fight. Maester Curley, he ran into the parlor as I was clearing away the tea things and hallowing as the master was a killing Ned. Mister, she ran in, and I heard her scream. The maester, he drove off, and a minute or two later, Maester Ned, he went out, and he ain't come back again. When I went in with the candles, I could see Missus had been a-crying. That's all I know about it. And enough, too, the constable said grimly. There's here be a pretty business. Well, you had best get your missus round and see about getting the place ready for the corpse. They have gone up with a stretcher to bring him back. They'll be here for long. I must go to Justice Thompson's to tell him all about it. This be a pretty kittle of fish, surely. I be main sorry, but I have got my duty to do. An hour later, Williams the constable with a companion started out in search of Ned Sankey, having a warrant in his pocket for his arrest on a charge of willful murder. The excitement in Marston when it became known that Mr. Mulvady had been killed was intense, and it was immensely heightened when it was rumored that a warrant had been issued for the arrest of his stepson on the charge of murder. Quite a little crowd hung all day round the house with closed blinds, within which they so lately active, and bustling townsmen was lying. All sorts of conjectures were rife, and there were many who said that they had all along expected harm would come of the marriage which had followed so soon after the death of Captain Sankey. The majority were loud in the expression of their sympathy with the dead mill-owner, recalling his cheery talk and general good temper. Others were disposed to think that Ned had been driven to the act, but among very few there was any doubt as to his guilt. It was recalled against him that he had been in the dock for his assault upon Mr. Hawthorne, that it had been proved that he had threatened to kill his master. His sullen and moody demeanor at the marriage of his mother told terribly against him, and the rumors of the previous quarrel when Ned had assaulted his stepfather, in which, related with many exaggerations, had at the time furnished his subject gossip in the town, also told heavily to his disadvantage. Williams, having learned from the servant that Ned was in the habit of going up to Varley, had first made his inquiries there. But neither Bill nor Luke Marner, who were at the constable speedily learned, his principal friends there, had seen him. Varley was greatly excited over the news of the murder. Many of the men worked at Mulvady's mill and had brought back the news at an early hour, as all work was of course suspended. There was no grief expressed in Varley at Mr. Mulvady's death, 
Indeed, the news was received with jubilant exultation. A good job, too, was the general verdict, and the constable felt that were Ned in the village he would be screened by the whole population. He was convinced, however, that both Bill Swinton and Luke Marner were ignorant of his whereabouts. So genuine had been their astonishment at his questions, and so deep their indignation when they learned his errand. Thou doesn't believe it, Luke? Bill Swinton said as he entered the latter's cottage. No, Lord, I doesn't, Luke said. No more does Polly here, but it looks main awkward, he said slowly stroking his chin. If that's how what the constable said is right, and there was a fight between em that evening. Maister Ned were a hot un, Bill said. He always said as how he had a dreadful temper, though we never seed nought of it in him. And he hated foxy like poison, that away allows. But unless he tells me hisself as he killed him, nought would make me believe it. He might have picked us some in handy when Foxy hit him and smashed him, but I don't believe it of Maister Ned that he would have done it afterward. He wore a downright bad un, were Foxy, Luke said, for sure. No worse than a dextrick. And there's many a one as would rejoice as he's gone to his account, and I believe as who's ever done it has saved and Captain Lou from a job. But there, it's no use of talking of that now. Now look here, Bill, what thou hast got to do be this. Thou hast got to find the boy, or expect he be hiding somewheres up on tomorrow's. Thou knowst better nor I where he likely were to be. Point him out, lad, and tell him as they be arter him. Here be ten pounds as I had had lying by me for years ready in case of illness. Do thou give it to him, and tell him he be heartily welcome to it, and can pay me back again when it suits him. Tell him as he better make straight for Liverpool, and get aboard a ship there for Murky, never mind whether he did a job or whether he didn't. Things look again him now, and he'll be best on his way. Oil toots, Bill said, and oil bid thee good-bye, Luke, and thee too, Polly, for ye won't see me back again. Of course I shall go with him. He haven't got man straight yet, and I can work for us both. I bain't a going to let him go by himself, not luckily. Thou art right, lad, Luke said heartily. Dang it all, lad, thou speaks like a man. Oi be sorry thou art going, Bill, for oi like thee. But thou be right to go with this poor lad. Goodbye, lad, and luck be with thee. And Luke wrung Bill's hand heartily. I can't say goodbye, Bill, Mary Pallet said quietly. I don't think Ned Sankey can have done this thing, and if he hasn't, you will find out that he will not run away, but will stay here and face it out. Then he will be a fool, Luke Marner said. I tell ye the evidence be main strong again him, and whether he be innocent or not, he will find it hard to clear himself. Oh, I don't think much the worse of him myself if he done it, and most of really will be in my way of thinking. Foxy were a tyrant if ever there were one, and the man what was so hard a master to his hymns would be loyal to be hard with to his wife's children. Don't speak like that, feyther, Polly said. Murder is murder, you know. Ay, lass, and human nature be human nature, and it be no use your going again it. If he had been and ill-treated the boy, and I don't doubt as he has, thou mayst argue all night, but thou won't get me to say as oi blame so much if he has done it. Oi don't suppose as he meant to kill him, not for a moment. I should think hard of him if oi thought as how he did. He meant to oi reckon, for to throw the house down and cut his knees, knowing as everyone did, as Mulvady were mighty proud of his hoist. And he may have reckoned as Foxy would get a good shake, and some bruises as well, as a scare, but oi don't believe, not for a moment, as he meant for to kill him. That's how oi reads it, lass. Well, it may be so, Mary assented. It is possible he may have done it, meaning really only to give him a fright and a shake, but I hope he didn't. Still, if that was how it happened, I will shake hands, Bill, and wish you good-bye and good luck, for it would be best for him to get away, for I am afraid that the excuse that he meant only to frighten and not to kill him would not save him. 
I am sorry you are going, Bill, and very sorry. But if you were my own brother, I would not say a word to stop you. Didn't his father give up his life to save little Janey? And I would give mine to save his. But I do think it will be good for you, Bill. Times are bad, and it has been very hard for you lately in Varley. I know all about it, and you will do better across the seas. You will write, won't you, sometimes? Never fear, Bill said huskily. Oi will write, Polly. Goodbye, and bless you all. But it mayn't be goodbye, for oi may avoid him. And we the hands of Luke and Polly. Bill returned to his cottage. He slayed a pack of a few things in a kit, slung it over his shoulder on a stick, and started out in search of Ned. Late that evening there came a knock at the door of Luke's cottage. On opening it, he found Bill standing there. Back again, Bill, then thou hast found him? No, Bill replied in a dejected voice. Oi a hounded high and low for him. Oi have been to every place on the moor where we have been together, and where oi thought as he might be awaiting, knowing as oi should set out to look for him as soon as oi heard the news. Oi don't think he be nowhere on the moor. Oi have been a tramping ever since I started this morning. Twice that oi have been to Marston to see if so be as they've took him, but oi ain't been seen of him. Oi are just gone from there now. Thou's heard, oi suppose, as the crown of journey have found that whereas Foxy were murdered by him. But it bain't true, you know, Luke, be it? Bill made the assertion stoutly, but there was a tremulous eagerness in a question which followed it. He was a faggot and exhausted. His faith in Ned was strong, but he had found the opinion of the town so unanimous against him that he longed for an assurance that someone else beside him believed in Ned's innocence. "'Oi don't know, Bill,' Luke Marner said, stroking his chin as he always did when he was thinking. "'Oi don't know, Bill. Oi hope he didn't do it with all my heart. Oi don't know about it. He was sorely tried, that be certain. But if he did it, he did it. It makes no difference to me. It don't matter to me one snack of the finger whether the lad killed Foxy or whether he didn't. That bain't my business or yours. What concerns me is, as the son of the man that saved my child's life at the cost of his own, be hunted by the constables and be written in risk of his life. That's the question that comes home to me, or I've had naught else ringing in my ears all day. Or I've been out there searching high and low, or I ain't a found him, but I may have made up my mind what I be a-going to do. They had moved a little away from the tin cottage now, but Luke lowered his voice. Or I be a-going down to the town in the morning to give myself up for the murder of Foxy. Bill gave an exclamation of astonishment. But thou didst do it, Luke. Oi more to done it for what thou knowest, Bill. He were the worst of masters, and as thou knowest, Bill, oi hated him choices out of the countryside did. He's been warned by King Lud and had been obliged to get the soldiers at his factory. Well, thou knowest it was natural as if he would drive down last night to see how the chaps at the engine was a getting on. And it come to cross my mind as it were a good opportunity for to finish him, so there thou hast it. Bill gazed in astonishment through the darkness at his companion. But it bain't true, Luke. Thou was talking to me after thou come out of the crew at nine o'clock, as thou saidst as thou was off to bed. Well, to the kind, Luke replied. Oi told thee, as thou knowest, as I were a-going down to the town, and Oi had got a turb in hand. Oi spoke mysterious, Luke, and you noticed as Oi had got a long rope coiled up in my hand. Bill gave a gasp of astonishment. That's what thou hast got to say, Luke said doggedly. Only instead of its being nine o'clock, it were at ten. Or we were just to slip a note to the cottage. The others were all asleep and knew nought about Moy having gone out. Bill was silent now. Oi wish Oi had a thought of it, he said at last. Oi would have done it myself. Oi wanted to let thee, Bill, Luke said quietly. Be a friend of thine, and Oi knows thou left him like a brother. And it's like more than most brothers, but it'd be more right. The captain gave his life for more child's, and Oi be a going for to give my life for his. 
that will make us quits. Besides, thou art young. Oi be a getting on. God, he'll be a earning money soon. And Polly, he can get a place in service, and it'll help to young'uns. They will manage. Oi have been thinking it over in all Lloyd's, and I said it all in my mind. Bill was silent for a time, and then said, There be one thing again at Luke, and it be this. As we can't hear nor to my Ed, oi be a thinking that as he have made straight for Liverpool or Bristol or London, with the view to going straight across the seas or of Liston, or doing somewhere to keep out of the way. He be sure as to look into papers to see how things be a going on here, and as sure as he sees as how you've given yourself up and owned up as how you done it, he'll come straight back again and say as how it were him. Maester Ned might have killed Foxy in a passion, but not like this. He didn't mean to kill him, but only for to give him a shake and frighten him. But oi be certain says he wouldn't let another be hoined in his place. So he see as thou'll do more harm nor good. Oi didn't think of that, Luke said, rubbing his chin. That be so, surely. He'd be bound to come back again. Well, lad, oi will think it over again of our morning, and do thou the same. Thou knowest more wishes now. We have got a twinness to get Maester Ned off. That be the thing as be settled. Don't matter how it's done, but it's got to be done somehow. And oi rely on thee to make my story good, whatever it be. There can't be nought wrong about it. A loy for a loy be fair, anyway. There be more and more and in Yorkshire in these times, and one more or less be of no account to any one. Oi be thy man, Luke, Bill said earnestly. Whatever as thou sayest, oi will swear to. But I would rather change places. That can't be, Bill, so it bain't no use thinking about it. Oi know thou wilt do thy best for Polly and youngins. It'll be rough on her, but it bain't to be help, and as she'll be going away from Varley and settling down elsewhere, it wouldn't be brought up again her as she had an uncle as were a Luda and get hung for killing a bad maester. Good night, lad. Oi will see thee in the morning. End of chapter 12 Recording by Gabrielle C.